Welcome to the seventh episode of Rain Race Day. We're going to be talking about Juan Pablo Montoya and his Lama debut with United Autosport in the LMP2 class. We're going to be talking about the current and future state of Formula One, and we're going to round it all off with a recap of this weekend's racing action. I'm Chris Aurelio. This is Rain Race. Let's go. I am joined here alongside not Kyle Cuthbertson because he is on spring break in Florida. Uh, so I'm joined here with my good friend Kevin Rollins, who is a part of the Dion Von Mulka special. What's up? It's great to be back. Yes, he is. Uh, well, you're going to be seeing some more of him over the month of May. Just a little teaser right there. There was a lot of racing action to go over in this episode, but that'll be coming on later in the episode when we recap all the events that have taken place. Uh, starting off here with the news from the past week. Uh, the biggest thing I want to go over here is Juan Pablo Montoya will be making his Lama debut with United Autosport in the LMP2 class. Um, so, United Autosport, they're racing the Legier JSP2 17. I forgot the 17 at the end. So that's a P2 entry, like I said, not P1. And this is a point that Kyle brought up when we were talking about the outlines for this episode. He said, if Montoya wins in P2, uh, wins in the LMP2 class, does it count towards the Triple Crown? Because no. he's already won Monaco and he's already won the Indy 500. I'd say the simple answer to that is no, because Mario Andretti finished first in class back in 1995. Um... And he was a Formula One world champion, which is, it's either Monaco or Formula One world champion. That's pretty much how the Triple Crown is regulated. Well, the unofficial Triple Crown. Uh, and he also won the Indy 500 in 1969. So I'd say the simple answer to that is no. If Montoya wins in the LMP2 class, it's not going to be counting for the Triple Crown. But what I think the good thing is, is that a... LMP2 drive will put him in a good position. If he's successful, I could see it putting him in a great position for an LMP1 ride in the near future. Well, remember though, Juan Pablo Montoya really got this spark in sports car racing when he, um, well, in his return to sports car racing, that is, because he did race in Grand Am. Um, but when he tested, um, I believe it was the Toyota uh, a couple years back um, on the rookie test after the end of the season he's put himself in the position where um his indycar career is pretty much done his formula one career is long over his nascar career was a failed experiment um and now really sports cars is the one place that he really has to go and he's still making waves in imsa which is not necessarily a good thing and the way he has made waves but going to lamar we expected it in lmp1 or at least i did but an LMP2 drive really will put him on the radar if he does really good, or it could diminish his chance of actually getting the Triple Crown if he really does do badly. And not all of that's on him. Anything could happen at Lamar. But I think his odds are better this year than it was last year because the LMP2 field has diminished a little bit because some of the really big guys in LMP2 have moved over to P1. Well, that and last year was a very sort of unique circumstance where pretty much all the P1 hybrids went out with some issues at some point in the race. And then Baikalis went out in the very early stages with their own issues. And that, that was it pretty much for LMP1. Now in LMP1, you have, it's going to be nine cars, I believe, at Le Mans uh, in that class. So all of them but, going out and giving that advantage to an LMP2 car, I don't see that happening. 
but you have to keep in mind though that a lot of these LMP1 cars are brand new cars and they will have teething issues at Le Mans. I mean, they could run perfectly in the 30-hour test that they just had and they go to Le Mans and have massive failures. Yeah, um, I mean, that is true. I, mean, I just It's very possible. A lot of people now are questioning, is it going to be Montoya or Alonso? Who's going to... Because, I mean, it's pretty obvious that both of them now are in the hunt for the Triple Crown. Of course, Montoya is already one step closer because he has an Indy 500 victory. Alonso is missing a Lamar victory and an Indy 500 victory. So, uh, But he's also a lot younger. So, And Alonso has one thing going for him, and that's the fact that he has everybody's eyes on him from the IndyCar world. And you know if he gets another Andretti seat, he's going to be right there again. So, Anyway, I want to talk about next because this is being recorded on Sunday. And so Bahrain and Phoenix have already happened. And one thing that Kevin and I both noticed and talked about yesterday during our Phoenix live stream was the sort of drama, unnecessary drama that we saw on pit road with crew members being hit. And then that was kind of just relayed again today because, of course, Kimi Raikkonen hitting the, I believe it was the left rear tire changer on his Ferrari um, leg. And, and, he, and he broke his leg. Yeah, he broke his places. leg. Obviously, we wish him a speedy recovery. But Kevin and I were talking about this last night. And I believe David Land talked about it in the um, post-race the discussion we had. Uh, where is it really necessary that we have uh, pit stops and open-wheel racing working like this? Because you look at uh, you know sports cars, and it's very simple. They just have one tire changer going around, very slow, uh, but it gets the job done pretty safely. NASCAR, they have guys jumping over the wall. They're not sitting there prepared for when the car comes in. Uh, so I, I think that that brought up a question. Would you say there need to be changes mandated uh, in order to have safer pit stops for open-wheel racing in the future? I mean, for IndyCar, what happened was stupid mistakes. That's just in a rush trying to get out under caution and with a crowded pit lane. I mean, the fact that it happened twice under one pit stop is mind-boggling. And... It's more than just, you know, the pit crew guys getting hurt. Look at what happened with Haas. Look what happened with Mateus Leist, where the guys aren't getting the work done, and now you're getting tires flying off, unsafe releases. That could cause incidents on track. So they do need to slow down the pit stops. I think for IndyCar, I would not say a minimum pit stop time would, would do anything. But I think for Formula One, to help improve the product as a whole, and this is going to be a very debatable opinion, they need to bring back refueling. Yeah, and I've seen that been thrown around quite a bit. And the thing that makes me wonder is that in sports cars, you aren't allowed to change tires while fuel is going in. Uh, yeah. So that makes well, me think. Also in sports cars, though, they limit how many guns and guys you can have over the wall at the same time. Yeah, that makes me think, though, what would happen if in a series like IndyCar that already has refueling and F1, if they brought back refueling, if you change the tires and then you drop the car and then the fuel can go in? Uh, obviously, that would be controversial because F1 in particular is about the speed, the passion, making everything as quick and efficient as possible. So having slower pit stops, I don't know if it would be the most fan-friendly idea. But if they're in this for safety, which they have proven that they are with the introduction of the Halo. Uh, and Controversially. 
Yeah, all of these new safety initiatives that they have. Honestly, I feel like that would be one way to sort of slow down the pit stops, make sure everything's all set, because there's a lot more you can mess up with the tires than the refueling. The refueling, you only need one guy, the hose goes in, it comes out, you're not worrying about tires flying off. If you can make sure all those tires are secure before you worry about refueling the car, I feel like that's one way right there that you can instantly prevent some of these things from happening in the future. We see with IndyCar that they're putting tires on, taking them off, putting them back on, and while they're refueling, and I mean, personally, I haven't had an issue with it, but once you start getting these crew members getting injured and you start to wonder what's an easy way to solve this problem, I think that that's one right out in the open right there. I think that that's something that the organizers should look into because, you know, in the long run, it's not costing the teams that much extra. It's only going to cost them a couple extra seconds in the pits. If everything can be done uh, to a higher standard, make sure we don't have these tires flying off the cars and make sure we don't have crew members being hit. Uh, I think that that's a step in the right direction, personally. I mean, the reason I made the comment about refueling is because that would add a whole other dimension to Formula One. You would, yeah, absolutely. Now, now you'd have another strategic piece implemented in where it would be feasibly possible for, say, like somebody like Haas to actually win a race on fuel mileage. It would shake things up, and that's what Formula One needs. Well, the reason, of course, why Formula One got rid of refueling is because you'd have cars flying out of their pit stalls with the fuel hoses still in, and then you'd have fuel spewing down the pit lane, and then all you need is one flame from the exhaust to hit that, and you've got a fire on the pit lane, which we saw a couple of years, well, it was actually more than a couple of years back now. Um, uh, 2008, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually think it happened on multiple occasions in F1 before they banned refueling. Uh, but the problem is that mainly they're going too fast. They're trying to get everything done in two seconds or <laughs> right around well, that benchmark in Formula One, and mistakes will happen. I just thought of something else that would actually pro like it's a simple change, but it would probably make things a little bit safer. Instead of going when the car drops, why don't you have a guy signal you to go? Because that's what happened with Kimi Raikkonen. As soon as the car dropped, he was leaving. And unfortunately, the guy was at the wrong place, the wrong time, and I think there needs to be a guy that actually has to physically signal them to leave instead of just drop and go. Yeah. All right. Uh, staying on the topic of F1, uh, Kyle put this in here, but of course he isn't here. So, I, you know, we can always pick this up, though, because it is uh, something that I agree with as well. Uh, he said that after watching the Australia F1 race, was it last weekend? Actually, I think it two was weeks ago. two weeks ago now at this point. Um, that F1 is becoming too political because if you saw uh, in the news, uh, there are a lot of teams saying that Haas and Ferrari, their cars are too similar. That Haas is basically running, in essence, a 2017 Ferrari with a halo on it. All the aero bits look similar. Of course, it's running a Ferrari power unit. Um, and there are wow. actually rivals calling for an investigation to be made. Uh, about the similarities between the 2018 Haas and 2017 Ferrari. Well, I mean, this isn't the first time that this has happened um, in term, and this whole rule about the cars, um, they have to be different. Uh, that came from 2009, actually, from Red Bull and Scuderia Toro Rosso, which, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out those teams are interlaced. Over the offseason, though, Haas has become a more stronger associate of Ferraris. And I think that they should just let them race. Because 
the people who are complaining about it are the guys who like the status quo in Formula One, where it's Ferrari Mercedes, and then you know you'll have Force India, Renault, and everybody else just falls in line. I wholesomely believe that they should let them race the way they are because it provided a very fantastic show, and plus it would boost um, viewership in the United States if the American team is up there and competitive. The thing that stands out the most to me is that this is nothing new by any standards whatsoever. Uh, Stealing, I mean, stealing for lack of a better word, other teams' ideas has been a thing since pretty much motorsport was conceived. And especially if you look at, like, prototype racing or even Formula One back in 2011, or was it 2009, when they introduced the blown diffuser with Red Bull, and then every other team started to introduce the blown diffuser because it's giving them that aero advantage. I don't think that teams copying each other is a huge concern to be seen here because I think, like you said, if uh, Haas wants to have a car that's very similar to Ferrari, be the Ferrari Junior team, as people are calling it, I don't think that there's anything holding them back from doing that. This, I mean, I just think it's a little bit childish because... Yeah, they may have that support from Ferrari where they're where they're uh, taking bits off a successful car, but you know what? That's pretty much how racing works. You need to stay up uh, with the others, and if you want to be one ahead of the competition, you have to find a way. You have to be able to introduce something that nobody else has thought of before to get that slight advantage. So, I, I kind of wanted to throw in one example of copying, and it's not from Formula One. It's something that you know because I I talk to you on a regular basis. This is something that you know I point out a lot. A lot of the LMP1 cars, are, and even the um, Dallara LMP2 car, it takes a lot of inspiration from the Porsche 919. Yeah. Because it works. Mm-hmm. That car won Le Mans three times in a row. So why not take a successful car and borrow arrow from it? I mean, pretty much that's the name of the game. Is it the most honest thing in the world to do? No. No. But I think that it's... It's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's been happening for years and years and years. So I don't see any need right now for there to be an investigation on Haas's behalf to uh, see whether or not they're copying Ferrari. So again, because Kyle isn't here for this episode, I'm going to be taking the reins on our In Case You Missed It segment, which, if you missed the last episode, is a new segment that we did. Uh, It's pretty much as much news that we wouldn't cover normally because it's smaller news, as much of that as we could possibly cram into a two-minute time period. Uh, There's not going to be a lot of discussion on it. It's just going to be straightforward and to the point. So two minutes on the clock, and here we go. IndyCar rookie Pietro Fittipaldi has found a ride in the Super Formula Championship in Japan. The front-engine roadsters will be celebrated on Legends Day, one day before the Indianapolis 500. There are 37 entries for the six hours of Spa uh, a month from now, first round of the WEC season. USAC star Chris Windham has found a ride with Bellardi for the Freedom 100. Uh, The Boston GP show car from the failed 2016 Boston GP uh, IndyCar race is now up for auction. Paul Tracy will be racing in a Trans Am race at Road America later in the year. Uh, Renault wants an engine freeze in Formula One from 2019 to 2020. Rene Binder has added the Duel in Detroit to his IndyCar campaign, making it six races for him in the 2018 season. Project One has revealed its Porsche livery for Le Mans and the rest of the WEC Super Season in the GTM class. Super GT has moved its date to avoid WEC's race at Fuji. 
Obviously, that's a whole political clash we were talking about. Danica has unveiled her livery for the Indianapolis 500. And lastly, Preferred Freezer returns as Spencer Piggott's sponsor for the Indianapolis 500 this year. There you go. As much news as you possibly need in two minutes. Uh, anyway, the next thing I wanted to talk about here uh, was Liberty Media and their plans for the 2021 Formula One Championship. They unveiled their plans about the cars, uh, two teams at this past weekend at Bahrain, and Kevin has made some bullet points that he wants to go over regarding these new plans. Yeah, I did a little bit of research when they announced it, and so the first thing that they're going to implement, or at least try to implement, is higher engine revs. That way so we could get a more louder noise, because a lot of people who've watched Formula One for a very long time have complained, the cars don't sound good. And I agree. The higher engine revs would add a little bit more of a higher squeal to the cars. Not too much when they're making your ears bleed, but just make them sound a little bit better. Another thing, they're going to be removing the MGUH, which actually is a heat uh, generator unit. And it works off the turbocharger's heat, and it will turn that heat into usable energy. Next thing they're going to try to implement is a stock battery and control electronics Something to kind of cost cap it a little bit. And, uh, you know, total wolf of Mercedes has been heavily against this so far. Um, of course, the factory teams are going to be against anything to cost cap it and bring the competition closer. And then another thing is going to be universal engine connections. And what that means is that, and I'm going to use the McLaren example, they've had issues getting the Renault engine to plug into their car per se. So what... Liberty Media wants to do is make a universal connection where you can plop a um, Renault engine where a Honda engine used to fit and not have to change the complete dynamic of the car. So it's very interesting to see that they're trying to actually step back in time with it in terms of how the cars sound, get rid of some of the major hybrid components to try to cost cap. And it seems like the biggest thing is cost capping in this. I mean, because they're trying to make the championship, obviously, like a lot of other series are right now, they're trying to make it more appealing to these uh, smaller privateers because, sad to say, we've seen some of these manufacturers, these big manufacturers like Mercedes and Ferrari, and on the sports car side, Audi, uh, switch over to Formula E because, you know, it's changing with the times, and uh, all these guys want to switch over to more green racing initiatives, so... Getting those privateers on board is really, really important for the future of racing. But the 2021 engine regulations are very interesting. And I can say this, that I don't really see all of them going through um, at all. Because F1 teams are like, all right, Liberty Media is like a daycare center. And all the little kids are the, um, are the teams. And they all want something different. And they all cry when they don't get it. For example, why do you think we have threats from Mercedes and Ferraris of a spinoff F1 series? Because they're not getting what they want. So it, it seems that the threats are, of pulling out of F1 are being more and more prominent because Liberty Media isn't bending to the will of the um, major manufacturers like Bernie Ecclestone did. So yeah, like you said, the uh, main purpose or the main focus of these new regulations is cost capping trying to get more manufacturers involved and of course i think that that's a great idea we've already seen the head of aston martin say that it's pretty much exactly what they would like to see uh, out of the new 
Formula One regulations. So that'll be interesting if we see them hopping in as an engine supplier. Um, but yeah, rather I mean, than a title sponsor. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great thing to look forward to, though. Obviously, they are trying to appeal to what some of the fans want, and I think that that's important. Um, you know, after the if we keep going back to this, but after the introduction of the Halo, a lot of fans were pretty much turned off. They feel like it's not the F1 that they grew to love. And I think that any way that they can get some of these fans back is going to be a great uh, initiative to bring forward. Like I said at the very beginning of this, we've had uh, quite a few big racing events going on. So why don't we just end off this entire thing uh, with a couple recaps here. Uh, The first thing I want to go over is the WEC Prologue. Every year, WEC hosts a test session at the beginning of the season just to get all the cars up to speed so you can see the brand new cars. Uh, particularly in LMP1 this year. We get to see all the new uh, beautiful liveried cars in the flesh. Uh, And that was actually quite interesting because if you were following live timing for it, like Kevin and myself, uh, you'd be... Like like nerds. Yeah, you'd be more than a little surprised to see that Toyota pretty much had a four to five second lead over all the privateers. And when I was watching this, the first thing that went to my head was, Wait, why? How? Because the privateers got a huge power boost in the off season, and um, you know when you're seeing that they had the same times or even slower than they were compared to the hybrids last year, something wasn't adding up. And of course, a couple of days later, Daily Sports Car reveals that Toyota was actually running at uh, pretty much full potential. They had, uh, they weren't following their turbo restrictions. They weren't following their fuel restrictions. Uh, They were basically just running those cars to their absolute max throughout the entire uh, test session and attempt to test the reliability basically to the max because if you can make it work under those harsh conditions, then hopefully, hopefully it'll survive 24 hours at Le Mans, finally. Um, I I do want to throw this one thing in there real fast, though. For the first time ever, it wasn't just separate test sessions. It was one long 30-hour continuous test. Yep. And I was actually split up into multiple um, sessions, but yeah. everybody was able to run throughout the 30 hours. Yep. Not too much to go over in LMP2. The number 31 Dragon Speed car had the fastest lap time of the day in their Orica 07. Uh, the Oricas had the top three positions uh, in the timings sweeped or swept over the first Delara in fourth place with the number 29 Racing Team Netherland entry. Uh, moving on to GTE Pro, it seemed to be Porsche taking the uh, taking the uh, high stance on this weekend. They set a fastest lap of one hundred one fifty one point three three two, and that is a hefty uh, six tenths over the fastest car that's not a Porsche, which was the number sixty seven four GT. Well, we also seen some issues with the BMWs. They really didn't appear up to speed, but obviously that's going to be rectified as well as the Aston Martins. Again, both brand new cars probably going to are probably experiencing some teething issues. Um, at this point, it's just get those cars um, ready for spa and they sh- hopefully that they'll be on pace once balance performance kicks in. Yeah. And lastly in GTM, it seems to be It was a Porsche clean sweep. Absolutely. I was just about to say that Porsche taking spots 1 through 4 out of only 4 entries from Porsche. Uh, followed by two Aston Martins and three Ferraris. So that was a pretty uh, pretty simple class right there. It's Porsche, Aston, Ferrari all the way down with nobody in between. Uh, 
Moving on to the Phoenix IndyCar race, which happened the night before this was being recorded, of course. Um, I'd say that that was a better than average from what we've seen in the past two years, Phoenix IndyCar race. I think that the racing uh, with the new package was better, particularly with Alexander Rossi making those dives. I think yeah. we saw something like 52, 53 passes from him by the end of the race, and the next closest one was Sebastian Bourdais with like 18 or 19. Uh, so Rossi was really on a mission, and we just really didn't want to see him taking out Wickens again, but it looked like that could have been a possibility at the end, but uh, luckily it, both it, of them kept it clean. I will say, you know, compared to previous Phoenix races, it was all right. But if you compare that to other IndyCar races, Phoenix is still a lackluster race. Um, and that's because just the track is not suitable for IndyCars. It used to be. It's not now. Um, and if it wasn't for Ed Jones, whose wreck um, did not go in vain because it set us up for a fantastic final couple of laps, you know, it would have been Wickens. So once again, Wickens kind of gets cheated out of a win in one sense. But at the same time, though, it set us up for a fantastic finish. I think the problem with Phoenix is people were talking during practice and qualifying that there could have been a possibility of a second groove. And if that were to happen, of course, that would have added in a whole new element because you would have had way more passing opportunities. But the problem with Phoenix is that it wasn't. It was a single groove race again. You cut out of that groove, and Pietro Fittipaldi learned this the hard way. Ed Jones learned this the hard way. You get out of that groove, you get up into those marbles, as the uh, ABC commentators would like to say, and your car is not going to like that, and it's going to end up in the wall. Uh, not even the weight jacker could save you. Yeah. <laughs> even... um. So I think the the only passes we really saw is if drivers get really daring like Alexander Rossi. I mean, like I said, the passing uh, was a lot better. Joseph Newgarden was able to pull something off on fresh tires. He was able to get by Wickens in the final couple the of laps. Line. There were a couple instances like Joseph Newgarden where you could make the high line work, but overall it just wasn't working for the cars, especially in the middle of a turn. Um so I'd give that race a 5 out of 10. I think that there still are improvements that could be made. Although, at this point, I feel like there isn't all that much that could be done in terms of aero. I know people like to point fingers at the previous aero package there that it was just simply too high downforce. And yes, while that is quite true, while that is quite true, Sam, <laughs> I think the biggest problem, like you said, is that Phoenix is no longer an IndyCar-suited track because it's more banked than it was when they first started racing there. And... David liked to bring this up in our uh, in our little post-race segment yesterday after the race, that Phoenix is sort of like in the middle. It's too, it's too high banked to uh, be flat where you can have guys running on the high line, but it's too low banked uh, to really add that second line where drivers can run flat out through the uh, upper half of the track. So it is, uh, it's sort of that interesting median that trying to appeal to NASCAR, but even in NASCAR, it's not putting on the best racing in the world. So, And the last race we have to go over is the Bahrain race. And, oh, uh, I got notes on this Yeah, one. Bahrain actually, this was the first F1 race I could watch in entirety for, well, man, it would have been pretty much, the last one I watched in entirety was Monaco last year, uh, and I thought that it was actually a great show. Uh, you had Sebastian Vettel just just barely even bringing those soft tires home to victory. He put those on, now, I think, lap 16 and was able to hold them off all the way until the end, hold off Valtteri Bottas and 
and get a win by half a second or so. I think it was great to see. Let's hit the reverse button here for a second. Let's talk about how we got there in the first place. Um, all weekend, the Mercedes has been struggling um, for speed against the Ferraris. It was evident in practice and qualifying. The Red Bulls, they were busy breaking down, um, which is unfortunate, but it, Max Verstappen had a terrible weekend. He a car broke in practice. He crashed it in qualifying. He had a flat tire, and then it broke. Danny Rick broke on the first lap. But when it came down to it, Mercedes said that they was going to go for a one-stop, and Bahrain is a very abrasive racetrack. It is very hard on tires. So the strategy for Ferrari was two stops because they seemed it was viable to do a um, super soft, soft, super soft race while um, Mercedes was going Mercedes was going to do a soft and then medium. Of course, Lewis Hamilton had the grid penalty as well, um, which kind of threw that in there. Um, so really, we've seen the two-stop strategy start to play out with Kimi Raikkonen, and then obviously the unfortunate incident happened in the pit lane. And I think that's what really dictated what how the race was going to play out. Um, so... Vettel did an amazing job to make those softs last to the end. It was evident that he was struggling for grip in the last couple of laps, but Valtteri Botas closed and closed and closed in the final 10 laps, and he was right there at the end. It was less than half a second uh, margin of victory. And, you know, Vettel shows why he's a four-time champion, because if he can hold off Valtteri Botas like that on better tires, um then, you know, all the props to him. It was a hard-fought victory, and that's something that we really need to say more of in F1 because it's not a very common occurrence that we say it's a really hard-fought victory. Um, and Lewis Hamilton got third. He really wasn't a factor throughout the race. I mean, he did play an effect on it by putting pressure on uh, Vettel in terms of where Vettel would have came out if he would have made a second pit stop. But again, Ferrari orchestrated perfectly today. Yeah, I mean, I think you pretty much covered what I wanted to say. Uh, <laughs> and it was a great race because, like I said, it came down to strategy. And it's very rare in F1 where you can say that. And when it does happen, I think it's great. It can show uh, the beauty of a diverse racing product where you have all these different cars on track at the same time. Honestly, this has been the best F1 race we've had in several years. Um, probably since Bahrain 2014 when Hamilton and Rosberg uh, went head-to-head -head the entire race. But, I mean, you know, it was a fantastic race that it wasn't a one-lap shootout. It literally went the um, length of the race. Yeah, and the, the drama of uh, the 2018 season continues because uh, Australia, we had both Haas cars going out within pretty much two laps of each other. And same thing this race with the Red Bull cars, so... Who knows who's going to be next? It's kind of just like the Jaws theme playing in the background. Who's who's going to suffer those reliability issues? And uh, well, also somebody who wasn't suffering reliability issues for once. And this is another chapter yeah. of the Honda um, soap opera. We can't even just call it a Honda drama anymore. It's a soap opera at this point. It's an ongoing thing. Pierre Gasly with yep. Daria Toro Rosso gets fourth in a Honda. And he won uh, F1's voted driver of the day, and he'd win my vote for driver of the day as well. I think 
it was it was one thing for him to throw that car up into P6 in qualifying, started P5 because of Hamilton's penalty. Um, but for him to stick with it for the entire race and just run pretty much a flawless race on consistency and and just bring that th- thing home to the finish. Among other guys, yeah, he had help from drivers like Raikkonen and both Red Bulls having issues. But for him to pretty much run that flawless race and come home P4, I think was great for him, great for the team, and really a big motivational boost for Honda because I think after three years, I think Honda's just, uh, you know, they just had a little bit of a lack of motivation. But I think going forward, this could be a great motivational boost for them to see what they can do in the future. And plus, let's throw in the fact that Honda rolled out um, upgrades to their power unit, and Toro Rosso rolled out um, aero upgrades to the car this weekend, and it showed. They were, in practice, they were legitimately fast. And, you know, this isn't like what we've seen in Australia when uh, Alonso got, what, fifth, where he actually was holding up a group of cars that could not get past him. No, Gasly was clear of most of the mid, or all of the midfield throughout the entire race. And he did that legitimately on pace, which is fantastic. Yeah, and I think it's just one of those curveballs that F1's throwing at us this year. We didn't really expect it, but we will be covering all of the uh, ins and outs of what F1 throughout the podcast this entire 2018 season. So stick along if you want to uh, catch all of that. The very last thing I want to go over in this podcast, though, is because IndyCar is heading to uh, Long Beach next. I almost said Phoenix. Um, which Long Beach is, you know, undoubtedly one of their biggest races of the season. Uh, Kyle insisted that we make some picks because we do make picks for the big races throughout all the series. So, uh, I think we need to have one rule for this, though. Oh, really? Because I was going to say Robert Wickens. <laughs> I was going to say the traditional like one realistic and one underdog, or one. No, wild Robert Wickens on this one. Okay. All right. Well, all right. You here. know he's going to be up there. I'm going to put myself on the spot first because I didn't even think about this, but hmm, this is going to be all right. Realistic. I'm going to say, and you can hate me for saying it, but I'm going to say Sebastian Bourdais because uh, you look at his performance last year and you look at the momentum that Dale Coyne has going this year, I don't see any reason why they won't be a uh, contender up at the front. And yeah, that's a biased pick and I'm proud, um, but I'm taking a play right out of Kyle's playbook here and uh, picking my favorite. In terms of a wild card, I'm going to go with the same one who I picked for Phoenix, which was Takuma Sato. Uh, Takuma Sato, of course, he won there back in 2013. Um, And he's been showing some pace this season, and if he can get that consistency down and throw in a good run, of course, I could see him being up front towards the end. Uh, Ray Hall Letterman Land again is a team that seems to have figured out this Honda package over the past couple of seasons and uh, very early in the 2018 new package, but uh, they seem to have a good grip on things going so far with that P2 from Graham at St. Pete. So for my picks, the realistic one, I know I said no Robert Wickens, so I'm going to go with his teammate James Hinchcliffe. He's the defending champion. He, uh, he has a fantastic engineer on the box with Lena Gabe. Um, the S&P package is proving to be really well as both cars have finished up in the top five in both race, both races so far. Um, and I think Hinchcliffe could actually pull off another win there and it'd be fantastic. 
Um, the only reason that I would really, really want Hinchcliffe to win is because of Lena Gade, because I'm an Audi Sport fanatic still. Um, now for the uh, underdog, I gotta go with Ed Jones. He That's has a good one. He has shown pace in the tests. I got to see him test at Indy. He was very aggressive. He was, but the he the car looked really stable with him. Um, and I honestly think that Ed Jones could actually get a win at Long Beach realistically because he has the he has a team that is now um, not divided in interest. They're they're running two cars. They got more resources diverted at them, and you know, and I actually refrained from picking Scott Dixon. So, mommy, be proud. But let's be honest, we're both picking Robert Wickens. Yeah, I think everybody <laughs> is picking Robert Wickens. Oh, man, that kid's on fire. Only two races into his IndyCar career and already running up front in the last couple of laps. So, uh, anyway, he's going to be on the spotlight this season for IndyCar. Uh, anyway, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Rain Race Podcast. Thank you so much to Kevin for helping me out and uh, co-host this one while Kyle is enjoying himself somewhere in Florida. Uh, you can check out his channel by clicking the card in the top right-hand corner if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, and here come the shameless plugs for myself. Uh, if you want to listen to this on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, just search for the Rainers Podcast. You can view it on YouTube. Of course, if you're already viewing it on YouTube, it's youtube.com slash c slash deductive rain. And go subscribe there if you want to see the future episodes. Uh, that's going to pretty much cover it for this one. I appreciate you all tuning in, and I'll catch you in the next one.